everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Myrick Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hofberg, and joining me today is Dr. Peter Gutierrez, and uh, I'm really excited to have Pete back on the show. Pete joined us for episode numero uno. That's right, episode number one. Pete was our first guest, and we're really excited to have him back on for episode 100. So welcome back, Pete. Thanks, Adam. Good to be here. I'm glad I've survived this long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, many of our listeners may be familiar with you, but for those of them uh, just tuning in for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Uh, so I'm one of the clinical research psychologists here in the Myrick, and I've been involved in suicide prevention research for over 20 years. I uh, have been with the Myrick for almost 14, 13, I don't know, a long time. Um, uh, I'm a past president of the American Association of Suicidology, uh, professor in the Department of Psychiatry here at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and most relevant to today's podcast, I co-direct the Military Suicide Research Consortium with my good friend and colleague, Thomas Joyner, who's a professor in psychology at Florida State University. Wonderful. So, again, really glad, and thanks for making the time to be with us today. You're welcome. So, as uh, suicide prevention is kind of a very broad field, today we're going to really narrow in and focus in on suicide risk assessment. And um, let's start off with just kind of the fundamentals of what is suicide risk assessment and why is it important? Sure. Um, in a lot of ways, risk assessment is is one of the older fields within you know suicide research, and there have been decades of efforts to identify factors that uh, make it more likely that someone might engage in self-directed violence than others. And, and then in the last 20 years or so, there's been an increased emphasis on protective factors, so those things that might kind of decrease the chances of that happening. Um, so there are, there are many uh, suicide-specific assessment measures that now exist that tap into you know, these various constructs related to things that elevate risk for suicide. Uh, there's been numerous efforts to try and use data from these measures to predict who will and won't make a suicide attempt or die by suicide, um, all with the effort and, and really the hope of getting to the point where we could administer a measure or several measures to a patient, score those measures, look at the scores, and based on them know, okay, well, there's a 85% chance that this person is going to make a suicide attempt within the next month or three months or something like that. Unfortunately, um, so far, the, the research has just not been able to deliver that level of precision. And... Um, Joe Franklin, who uh, is also a, a, a assistant professor at, at Florida State University, uh, he and his colleagues published really a, a seminal uh, study a couple of years ago where they did this, uh, what's called a meta-analysis. So it's using statistical approaches to combine the results from a large number of studies. And they looked at 50 years of the suicide assessment research and the ability of different measures to predict suicide. And uh, what they found is that the current measures that are in use um, are about as accurate in predicting suicide as flipping a coin. All right, it's a little better than 50%. Um, and there are 
there are many caveats to that. The, the biggest caveat is that many of those studies looked at suicide risk over very long periods of time, some literally lifetimes, some 10 years. And because suicide is such a complicated thing that's, that's impacted by so many factors, it's, almost, it's mathematically impossible, really, for a measure to, to have any sort of accuracy over that long of a, of a time frame. Um, but one of, the, one of the potential risks of, of this study being published is people saying, oh, well, measures can't predict, so why bother? Right? It's a waste of time. I could be using my time with my patient in better ways, so I'm, just, I'm not going to use assessment measures at all. And that would really be unfortunate. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, and, and uh, it's really intriguing. You know, like you said, maybe our assessment tools are no better at predicting long-term risk than a coin flip, but clearly we're not saying abandon suicide risk assessment. So could you go into that a little bit more? Absolutely. Um, in order for clinicians to know what they should be focusing on in treatment, I think that using standardized suicide assessment tools is essential. Um, the, you know, the combination of reasons why any individual person gets to the point of thinking that suicide is the best option they have, they vary widely. And um, uh, standardized measures allow you to ask every patient the same questions the same way every single time. And of course, different people are going to endorse different items uh, at different times. And so this gives the clinician initially uh, a starting point, right? So they can look at the, the patient's responses to these questions and say, oh, okay, you know, here's the three items where they scored the highest. Well, I should, I should start there in my treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... Um, if you readminister measures throughout the course of treatment, it also gives you a way to empirically track if your interventions are being effective. Because presumably, if you know you score very high on three measures, and we're focusing your treatment on those three constructs, and the treatments are working, your score should go down, right? And if they do and you're also reporting you feel better and you're thinking less about suicide, then we have converging evidence that says this treatment is working, you are less suicidal than when you started, this is a good thing, and I'm not as worried about you, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if your scores don't change or if they go up, then that says to me, something's not working here. And so that gives us the opportunity to make adjustments to how we're trying to help you um, based on good empirical data. So even if that measure that I'm using can't tell me how likely you are to make a suicide attempt next year, it can absolutely tell me if I'm on the right track with treating the reasons that you and I think um, are making you suicidal. That's really helpful. It's kind of a paradigm shift, like you said, kind of moving away from thinking about these tools as prediction and more about monitoring and sort of ongoing evaluation of how we're doing, how your patient's doing, and the progress in the treatment course. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to frame it. Excellent. So I think that's a nice sort of introduction into what we're going to talk about today, which is some really recent research that you have completed 
And uh, could you just tell us a little bit of background on the study and why you uh, pursued it? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this is a study that my colleague Thomas Joyner and I were uh, the principal investigators on. It was funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, and uh, it was uh, it was a suicide assessment study. Um, and the the motivation behind conducting this study was to try and um, definitively answer whether well validated suicide specific measures have predictive utility over a short period of time because we were we weren't interested in in screening for suicide you know just sort of flagging people who might be at risk we were really interested in the clinical utility question like could a single measure or a combination of measures um, perform well enough that it would give a clinician a decent sense of well how likely is this person to make a suicide attempt within the next three months. So that was, that was our definition of um, prediction, was from the initial baseline assessment to, to three months out. The study was conducted at two large U.S. military installations, one in the southern United States, one in the southeastern United States, and um, because of the installations where, where we were recruiting, we were able to recruit members of all of the services of the U.S. military, uh, including the Coast Guard. Uh, the largest number of participants were uh, soldiers and sailors, uh, but we did have all of the other uh, branches represented. We chose four primary measures because they're, they're widely used in suicide research and also clinically. Uh, they have good evidence that they're valid and reliable when used with civilians, um, relatively um, easy to administer, and um, to varying extents, good information about how to score and, and interpret them. So we selected the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, the full measure, there's also a screening version, we use the full assessment tool. The self-harm behavior questionnaire, so those two are both interview measures. And then two self-report measures, a very brief one called the Suicide Behavior Questionnaire Revised, and a longer one, the Beck Scale for Suicidal Ideation. We recruited, as I said, active duty service members at these two large installations. Uh, we recruited a, a 1,045 I think, I don't have my notes in front of me, but it was a big number, well over a thousand. Uh, so they were all administered those measures after they consented to participate. Three months later, we followed up with as many of them as we could uh, track down, uh, and we, we were able to, to uh, reevaluate uh, almost 73% of the sample, which given the size of the sample, the fact that these were all active duty service members who, as Listeners probably know they have a tendency to move around fairly often. We were, we were quite happy with the follow-up rate. We used uh, different tools at follow-up to um, find out uh, if anyone was currently experiencing uh, thoughts about suicide at the follow-up three-month follow-up and, and how serious those thoughts about suicide were and whether or not they'd made any suicide attempts uh, over the, the three-month period. So that was, um, that was the purpose of the study. That was kind of the basics of, of the methods that we used to collect the data. And we didn't have any hypotheses because um, really there, there haven't been any studies that have tried to do what we tried to do. So um, it, we were very much letting the data tell us what they would tell us. And what the data told us uh, is that there is no ideal measure. 
um, all of the measures uh, were able to predict both thoughts about suicide and suicide attempts at the three-month period better than chance, right? So we, we got above that coin flip uh, threshold. But we didn't get as far above it as would be really useful uh, to, to do what I said at, uh, during the introduction, which is, you know, for me to be able to look at your score on one of those measures and say, well, Adam's got an 85% chance of making a suicide attempt in the next three months. None of them performed that well. Um, so we believe that this is kind of a definitive answer to can these types of measures predict suicide? The answer is no, um, because with the with the values that we found, the the number of people who scored high on the measure who didn't go on to make a suicide attempt is high enough that I wouldn't I wouldn't tell any clinician to just rely on the scores and think that they can predict anything. However. Um, because this was the first time that, that any of these measures have been looked at in this way with service members, um, we confirmed that, that these are absolutely viable measures to use in routine clinical care of service members who are suicidal. And uh, our lab have, have done analyses with uh, some other data uh, looking at how measures perform um, in service members compared with veterans, and those data very strongly support that they perform equally well. So we are, we are confident in saying that the results that we got with this active duty military sample absolutely apply to veterans as well. Probably to other adult clinical populations, but I don't want to go that far out. Uh, so getting back to what we were talking about in terms of, you know, should clinicians use assessment tools? Absolutely. And if you, you know, don't currently have a suicide assessment tool that you like, um, then I would feel very confident in saying to you, you could pick any of the four measures that we used in this study, you know, based on your evaluation of cost, ease of use, uh, time to administer, etc., and you could feel confident that the scores on that measure would be useful for you in terms of determining what's driving suicide risk for this patient, where should I focus my intervention, and you know how can I track improvement in clinical care over time. So we weren't able to say, hey, there's one great measure and everyone should be using it because it can predict. Um, but we are able to say that um, there is absolutely clinical utility in these measures, and, and these four in particular, I mean, granted, they're the four that we chose to test. There are other measures that haven't been tested like this. Um, but, I, you know, I, I hope that this gives listeners like a really strong foundation for deciding what measure do I want to use in my routine clinical practice, because I absolutely believe you should be. Hey everyone, just a quick break from the show to let you know a couple things you can do to help the show get even better. First, write us and let us know what you think. We want your ideas for guests and topics. Write us at RockyMountainMyRack at VA.gov. Second, click your subscribe button on whatever it is you're using to listen so you never miss an episode. And now, back to the show. Thanks for breaking that down for us. So I wanted to circle back to a couple uh, points you made 
One was around the clinical population, and so maybe you could just say a little bit more about the population that you recruited and why that's important in terms of this being an assessment study, not a screening study. Yes, thank you. Um, so in order to be eligible to participate in the study, a military provider had already determined that the service member was at risk for suicide. Um, through the standard uh, screening procedures in the clinics where they were seen. And we were recruiting from uh, outpatient behavioral health clinics, from um, inpatient psychiatric units, the emergency department. So the screening piece had already been done. Uh, the extent of risk varied, right, because the different clinics using different screening uh, processes, um, but every single service member was deemed to be at some level of risk of suicide by a military provider. Um, and so uh, that is why I said this was an assessment study. So this is really looking at um, clinical utility of measures, not whether or not a measure can, can detect a non-zero level of risk. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful. And then... Um just keep reiterating this point here that, you know, what your study found is that we should be using suicide assessment measures. We absolutely should. Yeah, none of, none of the measures failed. Um, none of the measures performed so poorly that I would say, well, there, there's no point. Like, you, you, know, you, know, you know nothing more by using the measure than by not using the measure. Every single one of them was way better than that. Um, and, and all of them, you know, had some predictive validity to them. But, um, you know, like I said, at, at levels that you just, no emergency room doctor uh, would want to uh, make a decision about whether or not to, um, you know, hospitalize a, a patient based on their score at any of these measures, right? If they were being administered in the ED, which I think could absolutely be helpful, um, how they would be helpful is to pass that data along to the clinician who was going to provide the ongoing care for them, whether that would be initially in an inpatient setting or whether it would be, you know, outpatient mental health or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you know, you, you would not, you would want, not want to put in a patient's medical record, you know, administered to the SBQR, patient score was a 12, therefore I hospitalized him. And my next one, you know, the score was a two, so I discharged him because there's no risk. That would be dumb. Don't do that. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so now that we've kind of, uh, well, you and your colleagues have sort of reached this next level in understanding what suicide risk assessment tools can and cannot do and how they should be used, where do you see yourself going next with this and, and sort of stepping out a level, where do you see the, the field moving next? I'm, um, I'm very interested in um, development uh, and testing of suicide-specific um, interventions, psychotherapy interventions. And where I think that both that field and also the, the suicide assessment field are going and, and where they really can converge is in um, the mental health equivalent of precision medicine. Mm -hmm. right? So in physical medicine, there, there have been recent amazing advances in the ability to tailor interventions, for example, for particular types of cancer, 
to the cancer that that patient has to you know dramatically increase the chances that the treatment will be effective, that the person will survive, um, you know, go into remission, etc. And I think the the suicide prevention field is moving in that direction as well. And I think that the way one of the ways that that can happen is by using suicide assessment tools in the ways that we've been talking about to figure out which available evidence-based treatment is most likely to be effective for that particular patient based on their constellation of risk and protective factors. And if we can provide precision medicine to treat suicide risk, I think our chances of preventing more suicides of reducing more patient suffering, I think they, they both go up. And so that's really what I'm excited about and, and where my work is moving and where I think that you know, results of, of our study uh, can be quite helpful. Wonderful. Well, I, I love this idea of precision med- medicine being applied in suicide prevention care, and I'm, I'm so excited to learn more about it. And I, I really think uh, we're going to have to have you back, Pete. All right. Well, we'll we'll see if it's uh, episode one hundred and fifty or two hundred. It depends on you know how long it takes to do the research. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll definitely be here for you. I look forward to it. Excellent. Well, folks, uh, that's going to wrap it up for today. We appreciate you all for tuning in. And, of course, as always, we're here to answer any questions or uh, if you have any comments or reactions, thoughts. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, if you like what you listened to today, please uh, give us a follow, share with your colleagues, share with your friends. And until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention. Thanks for joining us today on the Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. The podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Rocky Mountain MIREC for Veteran Suicide Prevention out of the Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center in Colorado. Be sure to visit our website at www.myrec.va.gov slash visa19. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, head over to your favorite podcasting app to subscribe and give us a rating. And spread the word. Tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in every other Tuesday for new episodes. Our mission is to prevent suicide and to help veterans build meaningful lives. And when you listen to our show, you see the possibilities. 